All right. If that was from me, it was too much. Can we give Jesus a hand clap? Just lift up your hands. I want to pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you, Lord, in need of your word, God. Speak to our hearts. We want you, Lord. We belong to you, Jesus. We want to hear what you have to say. God, we've drawn close to you because we know that without you, apart from you, we are nothing. God, may we see you as you really, really are. The glorified God. The God who's seated on the throne. The revelation of who you are. Thank you so much for what you're going to do in this place. God, we love you. And Lord, we appreciate you and we exist to worship you. We exist, God Almighty, to proclaim and declare that you are the greatest. That the world may know that God is alive. And Lord, at the end of it all. We want to be sure that we have given you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Oh, yes. Revelation. I've been thinking a lot because, you know, I'm almost 37 years old. My Wednesday is my birthday. Um... And I've been reflecting a lot on my life. Uh, I've been a Christian for many years and uh, there's been valleys. And I think I'm one of those who can testify that God has saved me from a lot of things and uh, a lot of regrets. And uh, I have seen the goodness of God. And reading the book of Revelation has been a great encouragement to me. But I would say that it is, in fact, bitter and sweet at the same time. It is sweet because when I look at how it all ends, how Jesus wins... The new Jerusalem, the people of God in one place under God... Nothing wrong, peace, health, everything supplied, streets of God in glory and in the very light of God. That is sweet because that is the end goal. That is the destiny of anybody who has received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is the end of the people of God. But it is bitter because... When I look at my relatives, friends, and people who don't know Jesus, people who haven't had a chance to encounter the goodness of Christ, how he died, how he paid the price in full, because everything God will ever do to bring you and I close, he's done it through Jesus, and there's no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. It is exclusive, but it's because it's exclusive that it is inclusive. It is because there's only one way that everybody must know that there is a way to the Father, a way to be saved, and therefore 
we must proclaim. But when I look at my relatives, people I care about who are going to end up in a place that was meant for Satan and his angels, my heart, my heart cries, my heart weeps. Because that is the stubborn fact. There is either you are on this way or you are on this way. There is nothing in the middle. It's either you are headed towards the new Jerusalem in the presence of God forever or you will perish. That is bad news. But I'm so glad that people under the sound of my voice right now have a chance to make a choice whether to go on this path or to stay on this path or to remain on this path. God has given us choice. So looking at Revelation, yes, it's a strange book. It is a strange book. And at first glance, it is very complicated, difficult, and obscure. But this is mainly because we forget two important facts. The first one is that it was written to ordinary people like you and I within the seven churches of Asia. That is why we have to get into their minds and their hearts and read it through their eyes in order to see what Christ was saying to the churches. The second thing that we forget is that it was written for a practical purpose. It was not written to satisfy our curiosity about the future. It was not written so that we could work out and calculate the time that is remaining. It was written in order to prepare us for things that were yet to come, that are yet to come, so that we may be ready to stand firm. Because whatever God has revealed to us is to help us in the present. Whatever he hasn't revealed, that's up to him. But whatever he's stated clearly in scripture is meant to encourage you and I to live according to a path that will lead us to the place where he wants us to end up. Amen? So it is important to understand. See, Jesus was a realist. He told us clearly that in this world you will have trouble. And towards the end of history, things will get much worse. But you see, what you know about Jesus will hold you in the storm when things get tough, when things get hard. That is why in Revelation 14 verse 12, it says, this means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently, obeying his commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus, maintaining their faith in Jesus. So let's talk about the title, Revelation. But before I get to the title, I just want to say that this is the only book in the Bible with a promise to obedient readers. Look at what it says in Revelation 1 verse 3. It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. Very important. 
but it also has a curse for anybody who would temper with the contents of this book. And yet, this is the most tempered with book. People have tried to read into the book instead of out of the book. And there are countless theories out there about revelation. But it's the revelation of Jesus. It's not about us primarily. It is about Jesus and we who are found in Jesus and human history and how it will end. And we have to keep things in perspective. Now, when human beings record history, they cover what has taken place from time past until the present time. But when God records history, he records the past and the future together because he can see it all. And Revelation, the book of Revelation, it goes not only into the future of the world and how things will end here on earth, but it also goes into the future of things in heaven, such that when we read it, we have a full picture from God's perspective, because he sees it all. He knows how it's going to unfold, and this is known as apocalyptic literature or apocalyptic History. It's a disclosure. Apocalyptic, don't let that word intimidate you. It's from a Greek word that's called apocalypsis. It simply means unveiling or uncovering, disclosing, opening up so you can see, you and I can see. So God has opened up history from his perspective in order for us to be Encouraged for us to be comforted. So let's talk about the background, just a little bit of background of the setting in which the book was written. You see, by this time, all the apostles, the disciples, the, the, the 12 apostles, actually, yes, 12 of them had died at this time, and John was left alone. They were, some of them were hung. Some of them were sewn into two. Some of them were thrown off the cliff or tall buildings. And they just crushed and died. Some of them were crucified upside down. And they died for the faith, for the name of Jesus Christ. They paid that price for believing in Jesus. Now John is a political prisoner in prison at the island of Patmos, which is... 60 miles southwest of Ephesus. Could I have the map, please? Yes, that little bit there. That was where he was imprisoned in a cave. Now, you see, at this time, the church consists of third and fourth generation Christians. You know, when generations go, sometimes the version of the faith sort of changes. Sometimes things are watered down. And this is a crucial time for the Christian church at this time. Now, geographically, the seven churches are situated in the Roman province of Asia there. And that place is very fertile. It was very wealthy. It was very, very a wealthy cultured area, but under tremendous pressure of religious pagan ideals, both in theology and ethics, belief and behavior. Are you following me? Yeah. 
Yes. So politics, religion, and, 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 and just culture were all intertwined. Everything belongs together. It is, in fact, the, the strongest pagan world of all times, according to historians. Will the church of Jesus Christ survive in this hostile environment? It is almost as if Jesus is saying, if the church can survive in this province of Asia, it can survive anywhere. What can I do to help my people survive this tremendous pressure? I will send them letters, a revelation of things to come. And that's why he sent this book to the seven churches. Now, at this time that the book was written, Domitian was the emperor of, of, of the Roman uh, area, the province. And it was during his reign that John was captured and imprisoned uh, at, at Patmos. Now, in Revelation 1 verse 9, it says, John says, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, the Lord's day there is not just the day of Jesus Christ or anything. It's actually supposed to read the Lordy day. This was a day when every citizen within the Roman Empire had to bow down and worship the emperor. The imperial cult was fairly advanced at this time and people needed to actually worship the emperor. Failure to do that was considered treason. Which is why John, for example, is in prison because he's in prison for the testimony that Jesus is Lord. Now you see, they did this when they worshipped the emperor. They did this by taking a pinch of incense and throwing it into the altar fire and saying Caesar is Lord. Christians refuse to do that because they have one Lord, one faith. Jesus Christ is Lord, not Caesar. And they died. Blood was spilled for trusting in Jesus. So you can understand they were going through a, a lot of pressure. So Christians saw this as a decisive test for their faithfulness and ultimate loyalty to Jesus Christ. And they died. They took pride in dying for something that is worth dying for, which is Faith in Jesus Christ. So, will the church overcome through this kind of setting? Or will they go under? Now, the seven churches of Asia, they represent seven types of churches everywhere in all ages. That is why this message is very, very important to us right now who are listening because it applies to us. Now, there are three things that are affecting, in chapters 2 and 3, there are three things that are affecting the seven churches. Now, there were other churches, by the way, but these were selected strategically. I don't know why Jesus selected the seven, but it must mean something. Now, we don't have time to talk about the numbers, but let's talk about the three issues that were affecting the seven churches in this in this. Uh, province of Asia. It was complacency, persecution, and corruption. Are you following me? 
Ephesus and Laodicea are complacent churches. They are ticking the boxes, doing things right in many, many areas. But Jesus has one thing for each of the churches to say, no, 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 you're not doing right. You need to change that. And the common denominator between the two churches is that they were complacent. Just neither here nor there. Just an apathetic attitude. Just no, no, no energy. You know, they, they were Christians loving God, do, doing all things, but missing something. And it's possible. It can happen to us today. You see, the Ephesians, they had lost their first love. Now, you, you might ask, which love? Is it love for God? Or is it love for one another? Or is it love for the lost? I think all three are related because you cannot love God if you don't love one another. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. And there is nothing that makes an impression on the outsider like when they come in a place where believers are loving God and loving each other. That draws them in. That causes them to see that there is this circle which is inclusive and it is inviting. And that, in fact, is a testimony to the outside. So all three were related. They had lost their first love. And Jesus says to them, remember the height from which you have fallen. In other words, the solution to this problem is to go back in memory, use the memory and travel back to when it all started. It's almost as if he's talking to a couple that's been married for so long that they have gotten used to each other and they no longer feel the bubbles and the butterflies and behold, everything else that comes with when when you're in love, you know. And he's telling them to actually remember, to go back to when it all started. I want to challenge those of you that have been in Christ for a long time. Think about the time when you started your journey with Christ, how it felt. You know, that, that, that urgency to let everybody know. But these guys had lost enthusiasm because it's enthusiasm that sprays the gospel. It's your excitement. Like, I cannot keep this to myself. It's burning shut up in my bones. I cannot contain it. Somebody has to know. That is what spreads the gospel. But when you get used to God, you get used to scripture, to church, and you just come to a place where everything is flat, oh, that is a danger. He says to the Laodicean church, he says, you are lukewarm and I will spit you out. Meaning I will shut you down. For the Ephesian church, he says, I will remove the candlestick, which is the same thing. I will shut you down because the church is is, is the lampstand. The light is the gospel that we bear to the world. So I will shut you down. Jesus is offended by lack of fruit. He hates unfruitfulness. The very first thing that he told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. 
And he wants fruit. He cursed the fig tree for lack of fruit. It had a show of leaves, a version of Christianity, but it had no fruit. Where are you, child of God? Why are you not excited about the things of God? The world is dying out there. And we are enjoying ourselves very content, happy with how things are. That is, allow me to use this word, it's an insult to grace. Because when grace comes into your heart, you have no idea. You, you, you cannot keep it to yourself. You have to open up your mouth and tell somebody, Jesus is alive and he wants you. Don't be complacent. God wants you sharp, ready to spread the gospel, ready to reach people with the love of God. And he says, I rebuke you because I love you. The reason I'm telling you this is because I love you and there's a chance to change. And then he says one interesting thing. He says, He's outside at the door knocking. Jesus, people are inside and Jesus is outside knocking. What has happened? And at individual level, you see, because Jesus, whenever he's talking to these people, he's saying to the one who overcomes, the one who obeys, meaning that even though the address is to the whole church, it is actually targeted at individuals who would respond And if only one individual opens the door, he will come in. Are you with me? Let's move to Smyrna. You see, I can camp there and the whole service can be done because there's much to be said about complacency. But let's move on. Smyrna and Philadelphia, these are suffering churches. They are suffering persecution from outside. And Jesus has nothing negative to say about these churches, by the way. Everything, he approved them for suffering, for taking, having a share in his suffering. And they are suffering in two ways. Firstly, they are suffering financially. They don't have business because in those days, for you to belong to a business, you had to belong to a society. And the societies were tied up, when they had dinners, they were tied up with pagan ceremonies. And they will have a sacrifice before they eat the meal. And after that, they'll be drunk. And then sexual immorality and all manner of evil that will take place after that. Now, in that setting, where does a believer come in? Before or after that? You can't, you, you, cannot, be, you cannot be a part of that. So they had to be removed. And if you didn't belong, you, you, you have no business. So they were suffering. The other way they were suffering was slander from the Jews because Jews didn't like Christians. They could report Christians to the Roman authorities because they were registered. The Jews were registered as a legitimate religion because in those times, you had to legitimize your existence as a religion by registering with the authorities. And if you were found, Christianity wasn't registered. But it was predominantly Jewish. So they were reported and they would suffer. Suffering is enduring the demands of the cross or the gospel, no matter the inconveniences, no matter the odds standing up against you. And they were suffering. 
Let's talk about Pergamum, Thyatira, and, uh, and, and Sardis. These churches are suffering from corruption on the inside, infiltration of wrong teachings, wrong doctrines, especially for Thyatira. There was even a woman who was teaching, she was, uh, Jesus calls her Jezebel. <laughs> you know, she was teaching that you can actually have a spiritual experience through sex. They had wrong teachings and they had accommodated them. And the world on the outside was looking very much like the church. There was no distinction. Just blurring the lines here and there. Because we want to be nice to everybody. We want to, you know, just just put lowering the standards to the point where it is not even about God. It's just about impressing the world. And Jesus disapproves that and he warns them. And again, to the one, the individual who overcomes out of this yes he promises many different things so this is a book this is a book that you need to read like Jason you know he said this is a good book read it and we move on we had the overview over the churches and now we can talk about um uh Chapters 4 and 5. In the fourth chapter, you see God in glory. The one that Jason read. He is in charge of the universe. He hasn't relinquished any of his sovereignty to anybody. No human being has a power to bring human history to the end. God is still in charge. He's, he's in control of Satan himself. And nothing in the world can happen without his permission or according to his plan. So God is still in control. And in the fifth chapter, John cries. In Revelation 5, verse 4 to 5 says, Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. In other words, to bring human history, to bring history to the end. But one of the 24 elders, verse 5 Say to me, stop, stop weeping. Look, in my version, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals, Jesus Christ. Now, this is not a weak, cuddly picture of a lamb. This is a strong picture with horns. Seven horns. And if you stood in a room with a, a, a lamb that looked like it died but it's alive, you'd be measuring your distance, you know? Because those seven horns are sharp, you know? And the lion is a strong picture. The lion of Judah. He has overcome and there is no salvation outside of Christ. Salvation is in Christ alone. You see, Christianity is an exclusive, exclusive religion if you, if you will, it is exclusive, but it's actually inclusive. It is because there's one way, I reiterate, it's because there's one way that we have to actually call everybody to come to this way. And it is very important for us to understand that only Jesus can bring history to an end. It is not going to go on like this. The world will not continue like this in the state that it is. It has to come to an end 
the corruption and the, 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 you know, the depravity of humanity, it has to end. One of the reasons why God shortened our years, especially after the flood of Noah, was because he would not allow any of us to go on living in eternity and mess up his universe morally and materially. That's why he put a death sentence. But there's coming an end to all of history and all of us are going to stand before God and give an account of how we lived in this world. Will you be ready to do that? No one is exempt. All of us, Christians, non-Christians, we will stand before God and will give an account And as the scroll is opened, as everything is disclosed, chapters 6 and 18 are the heart of revelation, but we don't have time to go there. Behold, we are skipping them. (laughs) But don't worry. It's talking about the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. These are pictures and things and disasters and all the things that are going to happen before the end of this age. But it will be more concentrated towards the end because there will be an unholy trinity that will control the governments of this earth. So it will be Satan, the Antichrist or the beast, if you like, and the false prophet. Instead of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, the world will be in the hands of this unholy trinity. And depravity will be concentrated in a city, it's a metaphor, it's a symbol, city called Babylon. Babylon. It means confusion. That is why the angels in, in chapter 14, verse 6 to 13, it says, it, it, the, 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 the whole thing finishes with angels proclaiming, one angel proclaiming uh, the fear of the Lord on the earth. The second one, the next one, proclaims the fall of Babylon, the prostitute who made all the nations drink the wine of passion of her sexual immorality. The next one warns against worship of the beast, that anyone who worships the beast or the Antichrist will actually finish up where the Antichrist will be. Now, Antichrist does not mean against Christ. It means instead of Christ or in place of Christ. Now, there are many antichrists already manifesting, but there's coming a big one because when Jesus was tempted, was tempted in the wilderness, he, Satan was offering him the post of antichrist and he refused it. He overcame. But one day a man will accept that title and will rule like that. See, from this point on towards the, to the end of the book, it becomes a story of two women or two cities, the tale of two cities. Babylon, the filthy prostitute. No, oh, that's ugly here. <laughs> and Jerusalem, the pure bride of Christ. So we're going to talk about uh, Babylon right now. Babylon is the capital city of the world at this time. We're not told where it's going to be. But Babylon represents all that is godless, secular, sinful, and wicked. 
See, in the Bible, cities are usually bad places, and they concentrate people. That is why, and, and, and because when people get concentrated, humanity which is fallen, then sin is concentrated. Arts, music, and weapons, they're all concentrated, and they're, they're weapons of corruption in cities. So, all, all throughout biblical histories, history, urban areas have been corrupted, and the arts in there. Since Genesis 11, when Nimrod led people to build a city, the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel, is it Babel or Babel? Babel. <laughs> Behold. Yeah. So, they built a city. Instead of spreading out, they decided, no, let's make bricks. Innovative, genius. And they built a city that concentrated fallen humanity. That was a statement to God. They were saying, we don't want you. We can do it. We can run our lives. And we can, we can, we can do what we want. We've got what it takes to run our lives. And they were shutting God's agenda outside. Today, it looks like this. This is my life. I'm not a religious person. I can do what I want. I can abort. I can do drugs. I can do what I want. And this is my truth. You can be with your truth. But this is my truth. And Babylon is a system that doesn't want to involve God. And the Bible is saying that towards the end of history, there will be so much concentration. In fact, the Bible says that Babylon will be drunk with the blood of the martyrs, meaning that this system will actually execute anybody who speaks against it. And then it says that being a filthy prostitute, it says that, because you see, a prostitute, you, you pay money to get pleasure. So people will indulge with this system, with this woman, and they will get pleasure, and for that, they will be cast into a place where the Antichrist, Satan, and, 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 uh, and uh, the whole unholy trinity will be there, you know? Revelation 14, verse 8 says, Another angel, a second following, say, say, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. It's a picture expressing how depraved humanity will be towards the end in a system that is meant to bring degradation that will ultimately end people in a place where they were not meant to be. Hell was not created for us. And we need to grab hold of the grace of God. Grace is not given so that we can do what we want and, you know, outside of God. Grace is the power, the God, God's ability working in us to say no to ungodliness. And that is why we have to say no to a system. This woman, this prostitute, we do not indulge with her because we belong to New Jerusalem, which is the bride of Christ. Christ will come in the clouds. The dead in Christ shall rise 
first, and those that will be alive at the time, they will meet with him, and he's coming down to reign for a thousand years in perfect peace. He would demonstrate what a government, you know, uh, ruled by God can look like. And it will be a time of perfection, no sickness, no death. I'll have a new body. You see, in there, I will not be bald-headed. You know, you think I just like to just, just polish my head. I don't have hair. But in there, I will have my shade right here. I'm going to go like, you know. It is a new place. No sickness, no death. Everything will be perfect under God. Behold. Mike knows, you know. New heaven, new earth. And he says, to the one who conquers, they will have this heritage of remaining in God, in the presence of the living God forever. Perfect peace, perfect health, no cancer. You know, no no need for a dentist. I don't know the fruits we're going to be eating, but I think there'll be cleansing, you know. (laughs) You know, and after a thousand years, Satan will be released to tempt people. Because God respects the human choice. Even those that have experienced Christ's reign for a thousand years will still have a chance to still choose. That's how you and I have a choice. God respects your choice. What are you going to do with that? Let me read Revelation 21, verse 7 to 8. It says, All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, the murderers, the immortal, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshippers and all liars their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur this is the second death you see if you're a thief you can't be in heaven because you might want to trade the gold there'll be no stock exchange you know because every street is gold so you have no market for it you know (laughs) let me end this with A few reasons why we should read the book of Revelation. The first one is that Revelation is the ultimate end to history. And Jesus, the Alpha and Omega, will bring it to the end. The second reason is that it's a defense against heresy. Because there are cults out there that prey on the ignorance of ordinary churchgoers who would tell you they've got the keys to revelation. But if you read it, you will find out for yourself that there's nothing, you don't need special keys to unlock this book. It has to be read in light of the whole Bible, you know? And the the, the third reason is that you interpret interpret the, the world events with understanding, knowing that when things, tragedies, tragedy, oh, behold, tragedies are taking place, you know that the end is coming near and you'll be prepared for it. The fourth reason is that it's a motive for evangelism when you know that people will ultimately end up in the wrong place if they don't repent. It will motivate you. If, if really the grace of God is at work in you, 
It will motivate you to go and tell somebody because God is not willing that anybody should perish but that all may come to the knowledge of his dear son. The other reason is that it's a stimulus to worship when you see God as he really is. And you'll see, especially the fourth chapter, the glory, the splendor. Oh, this genius who created all things. It stimulates you to worship him in his glory. The other reason is that it's an antidote to worldliness. It's an incentive to godliness because every work will be brought to book. Our works are written in a book. And there are two books, the book of life and the book where your works are recorded. So it's, it's incentivizing you and I to know that what we do in church is not for nothing. There is a purpose. There is something God has for us in store. That your labor is not in vain. What you do for Christ, what you do, even in a small way, God recognizes it and it will incentivize you to actually do more to the glory of God. Second last reason is that it's a preparation for persecution. Before the end, Jesus said, we'll be hated by all men. The system will will want to, you know, eliminate us. The last and most important reason why we should read Revelation is that it gives us a balanced view of Jesus. In In the Gospels, it's gentle Jesus, a prophet who came to die for his people. In the epistles, Christ is presented as our high priest, who is ever living to make intercession for us. But in Revelation, Jesus is king. He's the judge who will judge all men. He's not the God who appears on the right side of the Bible to apologize for what the other guy did in the Old Testament. No, no, no. When Sodom and Gomorrah were being burnt, he was there. The Trinity was there. He was there. It's the same God so here we see the strong Jesus, not the cute pictures we hang up in, the, in, in our homes with a crown of thorns that is so clean and dripping with one drop of blood. The Bible says that he was wounded beyond recognition for our transgressions. By his stripes we are healed. That is our God. I want you to stand to your feet and just respond to this message. You look at your life right now, where you are. Have you given Jesus the best? Have you served him to the, to the ultimate? What are you doing? Having known that he's a good God. Are you used to the idea of being in relationship with him? Are you a complacent Christian? There's a chance for you to repent and start a, a fresh, on a clean slate, start afresh.